Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. I'm a walking down the street. Hey, 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 got my pistol in my hand. Yes, I'm a walking down the street. Hey, 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 got my pistol in my hand. All the girls walk around, yeah, yeah. Mr. Bang, bang, bang. I knew I'd find some excuse to play Little Hank. Well, here it is, Mr. Bang Bang Man, 1966 on Soundstage 7. Yeah, who was Little Hank? Beats the heck out of me. Now, John R. on WLAC played the heck out of that song, but he was A&R director of Fred Foster's Soundstage 7 record label anyway. So the year that Soundstage 7 signed their only big hit maker... Which Joe Simon was the same as the Little Hank record. So, needless to say, Little Hank didn't get uh, nearly as much uh, promotional value as maybe he could have. Try to understand a killer soul ballad by him, by the way. But Mr. Bang Bang Man had a huge impact in Great Britain. In fact, the first manager of The Who later recorded it with Jimmy James and the Vagabonds for his new wave label. So it has a a certain amount of history there, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, Actually, the gun control uh, debate is not a lot of fun because there are so many fallacies that surround it, and that's why I am so grateful for Dr. John Lott from his first book, More Guns, Less Crime, in 1998. And by the way, there's a third edition out right now to the current book, Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media, and Botched Studies Have Twisted the Facts on Gun control. This may be the only place that you can concisely and cogently get the facts behind what you're hearing. And what you're hearing on major media is so distorted, it leads one to wonder if there isn't some intent there. Dr. Lott, thanks for joining us again. Oh, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, now, you're probably happy as am I, sort of uh, muted, but uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Friday, striking down California's ban on large-capacity magazines. You think California will, in fact, appeal that? Oh, yeah. No, I, I would put a lot of money on the fact that they're going to ask for an en banc, which basically means have the entire court review the, uh, the three-judge panel decision there. That's what they've done uh, in the past. And the, and the issue is, is that uh, the court as a whole is still dominated by Democrats. So there's been a number of cases in the last decade or so where you'll have a three-judge panel which uh, will do you know similar to what this panel did but then uh, have that reversed when the entire Ninth Circuit is asked to uh, review the case and my guess is that's what will happen there and and unfortunately that's probably where it will end Um, uh, the Supreme Court is uh, is badly divided on the gun issue. There were 10 cases that the Supreme Court uh, was considering taking up this year. Uh, you have the four Democrats on the, on the court would like to reverse the original Heller and McDonald decisions, which really didn't do much more than just simply say that the government could not ban all guns or all handguns or all rifles. Um, and uh, 
and then you have four Republicans which would like to, uh, you know, apply that further. But unfortunately, you have John Roberts uh, kind of sitting in the middle, and just as he's kind of gone the wrong way as far as the Republicans would be concerned on issues like religious freedom or on uh, on DACA or on Obamacare or on a dozen other issues. Um, my understanding from talking to uh, Supreme Court clerks that there's a lot of concern that he would go the wrong way on a gun issue if they were to bring it up. And so uh, what you have right now, I mean, Trump's been able to appoint uh, 203 judges to the federal courts, and that is a lot, but uh, it gives you an idea how out of balance the circuits were to begin with. Right now he's just been able to bring them into rough balance. Uh, the Democrats control the circuit courts for 24 states and the District of Columbia, which is considered the second most important uh, circuit court, and the Republicans for 26. Um, and so uh, what, what you end up having happen is that uh, the circuits that the Democrats tend to control are also the circuits which they tend to control legislatively, uh, such as for California or New York, and pretty much any gun control laws that get passed in those states are eventually approved. Yeah, sadly, I'm kind of on the same page with that, and I was worried about those 11 judges because of all the things you just uh, you just stated. I was pleased that the three panel with Kenneth Lee in the lead at least did come down this way, which actually upholds, as you well know, the ban passed by the U.S. District Judge in San Diego. So at least right. there's a little precedent here, but like you, I figured that they too would go uh, for, uh, for the full 11. And the Supreme Court, it seems, and I, I agree with uh, with John Roberts being a wild card, and uh, I'm not sure we want to put anything in, in front of them right now, but it seems like the Supreme Court is not hearing these cases anyway at this point of uh, all that's been brought in front of them. Have they actually selected any? No, that's the, that's exactly the point. You're exactly right. There's Over the last 10 years, they've turned down all the cases. They actually had 10 cases that were, they were considering for review you only need four justices to ask for a case to be reviewed, and they had four justices who wanted to review maybe all or almost all the ten cases. Some of the cases have been waiting uh, for two years for a decision to be made by the Supreme Court. But ultimately, uh, the four Republican conservatives that you have there decided not to ask for a review for any of those ten cases, uh, which covered a range of different issues uh, because they were worried that if they did ask for a review of that, uh, it's called granting cert, mm -hmm. then uh, Roberts would vote the other way, just as he has on many other cases. Right, right, and then it, then it would become basically the law as it uh, as it right. were and that's uh, that's very dangerous grounds to say the say the least obviously uh, people who are adamantly 
uh, against gun ownership uh, to to give them the most uh, uh, generous viewpoint of this they they want to prophylactically stop crime and they, they think that somehow that banning these weapons will make people safer in the old it's for the children arguments and, and all that. The, the problem with that, as your research has proved time and time again, is if you really want to stop crime, your best shot is widespread gun ownership among law-abiding citizens. Has there ever been a case where that is wrong? Well, i give you one very simple fact, and that is uh, both in Chicago and around the world, there have been attempts to ban guns, either all guns or all handguns, as in the case of Chicago or, or Washington, D.C. And, wh- and what you find is that every single time either all guns or all handguns have been banned, murder rates go up. You would think out of randomness, just one time when you had had that type of ban, uh, if guns were really uh, net bad, as claimed, you would have seen murder rates go down, or at very least just stay the same. Instead, what you see is often very large, you know, you know, double or triple or even more than that, increases in murder rates uh, immediately after the bans go into effect. And it turns out there's a very simple explanation for that, and that is when you ban guns, it's the most law-abiding good citizens who obey the bans and turn in their guns and to the extent that you disarm law-abiding good citizens relative to criminals, you actually make it easier for criminals to go and get guns. You know, I wish it was easy to stop criminals from, from getting guns, but the, the major source of illegal guns are drug dealers. You know, it's not like um, you can a drug dealer uh, who's, let's say, his drugs have been stolen by another uh, gang or dealer can go to the police and say, you know, can you help us get my drugs back? What they have to do essentially is set up their own little militaries in order to protect the extremely valuable property that they have. And the same people who sell illegal drugs have guns for that very reason, and they sell guns. Um, and uh, you know, I'll give you an example. You look at Mexico. Mexico, since 1972, has had only one gun store in the country. Uh, it's located in Mexico City. It's run by the military. Uh, guns are very expensive. The most powerful gun that you can go and buy in uh, Mexico since 1972 is a 22 caliber short round uh, rifle. Uh, that's not the type of weapon that the drug gangs in Mexico are using. Um, and yet Mexico has a murder rate that's about six times higher than the murder rate than we have in the United States. Uh, you know, and they get weapons from around the world that they bring in with the drugs that they have there. It's not like they go to gun stores in either Mexico or the United States. Uh, over a recent five-year period, 13,000 grenades were confiscated from drug gangs by by the government there. They don't go to American gun stores uh, and buy grenades. Uh, they've collected literally hundreds of rocket launchers and other other types of weapons like that. You know, if I if I could click my fingers and cause all illegal drugs to disappear from the United States and all guns. How long do you think it would be before illegal drugs started coming back in? If you're in El Paso, maybe 20 minutes? And how long do you think it would be before 
they started to bring in the ve- the weapons that they would need to protect that very valuable property. They'd bring them in at the same time. And so, you know, it's if you think it's going to be easier to stop criminals from getting guns than it's been to stop them uh, from getting illegal drugs to go and use, good luck, uh, because it's not. And uh, I think people know how difficult it's been to stop uh, people from being able to go and buy illegal drugs. Mexico. And, and, you, and you know the... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say Mexico. But, and the general point is, the, ge- the general point is, is that... Um, the, while I talked about bans a minute ago, the argument applies to gun control laws generally. You have to be careful that the laws that you're passing don't primarily disarm law-abiding good citizens relative to criminals. Because if if you pass a law like that, no matter how well-intentioned it is, you can actually have the opposite effect from what you'd like to have happen. You're almost guaranteed it, actually, and uh, we've, we've talked before about uh, you look at some of the most horrendous shootings and what they have in common is they're all in gun-free zones. But Mexico is such right. a, a stellar example because uh, anybody who has friends or family down there, you have entire cities that are on lockdown as of sundown every night because people are afraid because the death rates are so high. It's astronomically high, and the things that the cartels can rely on is the law-abiding citizens not able to shoot back right i mean you have states in mexico uh where the murder rate is you know 110 or 120 per hundred thousand people you know just to give an idea the murder rate in the united states is about five per hundred thousand uh the very worst cities in the united states are like 50 per hundred thousand uh so here you're talking about cities in Mexico that are well more than, or states which are well more than twice that, and there are cities within those states which have even much, much higher murder rates than that. One of the things I love about your books are the fact that when you research this, you're coming at it not trying to bend the figures, not trying to have the figures equal your hypotheses. And what we wind up seeing is that when you thoroughly research something, if there was an exception, you would be the one to find it. And as far as I know, there are no exceptions worldwide to the idea that you take away guns from lawful citizens, crime will go up. Now, my next question is, well, when you do that, and a lot of countries have, of course, and we, we often say that, you know, the guns go first and then there goes your liberty. But is there any country that has banned guns that didn't ultimately follow with some loss of liberty and citizen rights? Uh, well, I mean, my guess is that's probably the case, but that's not the type of thing that I've studied myself. I usually study things like crime rates uh, and, you know, what causes crime rates to change, you know, so I can talk about what happens in Chicago there or other places, but uh, the freedom stuff, um, you know, yeah. I, I, I can make guesses on it, but it's not my kind of bailiwick. We've had a lot of laws passed in this country over the years, some well-intentioned, others maybe we question. But again, in any of those laws, this is where the heart of your research is. Have you ever found an anomaly where you said, hey, you know, that actually is working? 
You know, I wish it was easy to go and find something like that. Uh, you know, to me, if you want to reduce crime, it is pretty straightforward, and that is you increase arrest rates, you increase conviction rates, uh, you make it so that it's riskier for criminals to go and commit crimes. You know, in Chicago uh, last year, uh, the, you only had 22% of murders resulting in an arrest. And um, I think people know, I mean, just listening to the police there and the uh, county attorney kind of argue back and forth, the police then say, you know, you don't convict a lot of the people that we arrest. Uh, you drop cases against them, and the district attorney attacks the police for not arresting too many people to begin with. Um, you know, a lot of things have changed in Chicago over time. If you go back to when the second daily took over, uh, you would find that about 67% of, uh, of murders resulted in arrest. By the time uh, Richard Daly left uh, office, it was down to 30%, um, and it continued falling after that. And, and it's pretty easy to go and see the types of policies that have been put in effect which have caused those drops. So you look at Rahm Emanuel, for example. Um, one of the things that he did was he made an agreement with the ACLU that every time a police officer talks to a civilian, they have to go and fill out forms. It's basically two legal-sized pages of small print that they have to fill out. And that can take anything from 45 minutes to over an hour for them to do that. If a officer, we're not talking about arrest, uh, we're just talking about talking to people. Uh, you have a, an officer can talk to four people in the morning and basically his afternoon is taken up doing about, doing paperwork. There's all this debate about defunding police. Well, you, take the police officers off the street to go and do paperwork, you're essentially accomplishing the same thing as defunding the police. And there have been many other things that have happened. Uh, Rahm Emanuel, when, uh, when he became mayor, one of the very first things that he did was he closed down uh, the police bureaus in the two highest murder rates parts of the city. Now, Murders and crimes were still solved in those areas, but police would have to travel much further, uh, you know, to have detectives have to travel a half hour or 40 minutes or whatever to get to those areas where the murders were occurring made it much more difficult for them to go and solve crimes. But, you know, you take something like these forms that we were just talking about, if you make an officer have to fill out those forms, what does that do to his incentive to go and talk to people? What does that do to his incentive to go and get to know the people in the area there? It makes it so he doesn't want to talk to them. It makes it so that the police officer doesn't get the type of information about what's happening in the community that he used to used to get. And... Uh, it, you know, and the current mayor has done many things uh, in terms of political correctness, in terms of changing what's being taught in the academy. Uh, and one just needs to see kind of the hostility between uh, the police union there and the mayor's office by reading some of the emails and other exchanges that they've had there just to see the fact that you have very low morale among the police, that they don't think that 
their work is appreciated, that they'll get into trouble, and that even if they make an arrest, it's not something that's going to result in uh, convictions for people. And that also feeds back in terms of civilians' willingness to go and help the police. If, if you think, so if it's 22% on average end up being uh, arrested uh, for gang murders, it's even lower than that. And then you're talking about only a fraction of those resulting in conviction. You're probably talking about something in the low teens uh, as a percent of those who of gang murders uh, there who end up being convicted. You know, you have to ask yourself if you're a civilian and you want to be a witness in uh, mm-hmm. in one of these cases to go and do your civic duty. Mm-hmm. What are the risks for you doing it? What's the probability that you're actually going to? by your involvement, by you risking your safety, actually end up putting these bad people away. Well, not only that, what's going on in New York, of which you're probably aware, is now the uh, the accused gets all the information on anyone who's going to testify against them. Their, their addresses, sure. their names. I mean, I can't imagine that anyone in their right mind would come forward. We're talking with Dr. John Lott. The latest book is Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media, and Botched Studies Have Twisted the Facts on Gun Control. It is a wonderful argument, Settler, as far as that goes, because... It's all laid out, many of the, uh, of the, the current news stories, which fall right into that myth category that are presented as factual. You will, uh, you will read about them debunked start to finish. Now, obviously, Dr. Lott and I are on the same page on this. Maybe you're not. Well, how about giving us a call? 888-876-5593. That's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E on WGN Radio. Things are so quiet in Texas Since I got rid of Alexis He used to keep me up Till the dawn came in sight He kept on making bang, bang All through the night He was riding the range Too darn often So I laid him to rest in his coffin I yanked out the bullets, I sawed off his barrel, now he can't shoot his pistol anymore. Our neighbors never bothered to go to the show, they'd stand around and wait for our own rodeo. It was only one gun that he toted, but oh my, how fast he could reload it. I yanked out the bullets I sawed off his barrel Now he can't shoot his pistol anymore Well, Dr. Demento fans will remember her Ruth Wallace the Pistol Song from 1949. Uh, she was the queen of the double entendre, obviously. Born in Brooklyn in 1920, she was a cabaret singer. We met her husband, High Pastman, while performing in a local, local cocktail lounge. And High and a partner started Wallace Records to release her stuff, and they quickly learned that 
you know, the cabaret songs and the jazz numbers and the torch songs, forget about it. It was the double entendre that, that sold. And, uh, in fact, her stuff became so popular, yes, banned in Boston. And, uh, yeah, I think that Dr. Domeno Cutter used to play all the time was Boobs. We'll spare you that, but that's the Pistol song. We're uh, talking to Dr. John Lott, Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media, and Botch Studies Have Twisted the Facts on Gun Control. And, again, the third edition of More Guns, Less Crime, which was the book that started it all, Understanding Crime and Gun Control Laws. Uh, I've got links on Raleigh.net, R-O-L-L-Y-E.net. But I have had just a great time with the uh, with the current book, Gun Control Myths, because, well, for one thing, everything that Dr. Lott brings up is documented. Uh, it's logical, it's fact-filled, and the specifics on where to find the information are at the end of every chapter. So it, it truly is an argument settler for anyone who is wanting to uh, wanting to look at facts. And uh, you bring up so many things in the book that, that I love, but one of the things that, that just grates on me and drives me crazy, and you have a whole chapter on it, is politicizing the FBI. When, when they're making statements like only one of 160 report of active shooter attacks was solved by uh, a law-abiding citizen with a gun, this is just nonsense. Right. No, it's very disappointing. I mean, people have kind of talked about how the FBI and the Department of Justice were politicized uh, during the Obama administration. I've, I've dealt with data for several decades, and I've never seen... Uh, before what happened during the last years of the Obama administration, where they would literally reach in and kind of shape data for political views. And uh, I would go and say, look, you know, I have these cases. I have literally dozens of cases where uh, people with permanently concealed handguns have stopped what, according to police, uh, would have been mass public shootings. In fact, in my book, um, uh, gun control myths. I have a chapter giving examples yeah. of that. And uh, I would contact the people uh, at the FBI. Uh, they had actually had two uh, researchers uh, from Texas State University, criminologists, who they had hired to go and do uh, the initial reports that they had done. And I wrote an academic piece that I published that basically went through and said, look, you've missed a lot of these cases. And their response that they wrote was basically, well, you know, it's government data. You expect there to be mistakes in the stuff. And uh, uh, But the problem is, and I've continued to point these mistakes out over the years, even in the later reports, but I have emails <laughs> where they basically concede the mistakes that were there, or they'll say, well, you know, it's just subjective. And I'll say, this meets your criteria. This is exactly like another case that you did include here. Why aren't you including this? And uh, even when I get them to concede it in emails, uh, they don't correct the studies that they put out. And these studies are used in court cases. The data that they put together is used by other academics, which is one of the reasons why I've written academic papers, just to you know, let people know that there are real errors in uh, in this data that's being put out. That's truly frightening, especially when you mention court cases, because you're you're now dealing with with data that is flawed, data that is known to be flawed, and yet people's freedom is lying in the balance of this. Because when you 
state and FBI study, uh, the, uh, right. the implication is that this is the truth. And to get an answer like, well, it's government data, and I'm glad that you, uh, that you wrote The Heroes That the News Media Doesn't Cover, Chapter 4 in the book, because you do. Uh, ha- I'm sure you had no trouble coming up with these cases, whether it was Colonial Heights or Birmingham or uh, uh, Titusville, Florida or Louisville, Kentucky, or on and on. Uh, and it's all through the country. I mean, it's not, uh, not in any one area. Uh, you probably didn't have a hard time coming up with those cases. Well, I mean, it took some work, but the like one thing I will say, it's amazing uh, that these cases just don't get national media coverage. And even when they are covered locally, they may only get a couple of stories, even very dramatic cases. Um, yeah, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, uh, you know, we had the Pulse nightclub shooting mm-hmm. in Orlando, uh, which at the time was the worst mass public shooting that we had had. And um, about a week afterwards, uh, there was an attack at a nightclub in South Carolina. But it ended very differently. The attacker there had shot three people, was shooting at a fourth person. And the fourth person they were shooting at happened to have a permanent concealed handgun, and he wounded uh, the attacker. The difference between Florida and South Carolina was that uh, in Florida, Florida was one of 10 states that banned permanent concealed handguns in uh, establishments which got more than 50% of their revenue from alcohol sales. South Carolina allowed people with permanent concealed handguns to go into uh, nightclubs like that. And, uh, you know, I would have thought that given the sensitivity that people had about these nightclub shootings, that... Here you had a case, uh, several people were shot, uh, none of those died. But you would think that it would get news coverage. And in fact, the only news coverage that you'll see on that will be local media. Uh, I'll give you another example. Uh, you had the Parkland shooting. Uh, just a few months after that, in Florida, uh, not very far away from that, there was a, a school event at an elementary school. Uh, you had over 200 students that were there, and you had parents and other adults that were there. Uh, a man came in, started to attack people there, firing his gun. Fortunately, uh, a vendor uh, there uh, had a permanent concealed handgun with him and was able to seriously wound the attacker. You would think, given that all the attention to the Parkland school shooting here, and that here you have this hero that... According to police, they, the police, you have multiple statements from police saying that many people would have died if it hadn't been for the concealed handgun permit holder. Uh, you will only find local news coverage in Florida on that event that's there. Right. In fact, if, if you look at the last five years that I looked at in the book, um, there's only two of the cases that got national news coverage and the media managed to botch both of those cases. Uh, I'll give you one example. Um, uh, people remember the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. Just a few days after that, there was an attack at a Kroger grocery store in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, 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 a man had gone into the grocery store and was shooting blacks. And what got the national news attention was the quote from the killer where he went to a customer who was white and said, whites don't shoot whites. <laughs> so if you watched 
meet the press. Uh, you know, Chuck Todd uh, would interpret this as the uh, murder assuring another white that he was safe, that he wasn't going to attack him. And that's the same thing on ABC, CBS, NBC Evening News, etc. Uh, the thing is, they left out the first part of the quote. The first part of the quote was, please don't shoot me. Whites don't shoot whites. That what happened was is that rather than assuring the the customer that he was safe, the customer had a permanent concealed handgun and he was pointing the gun at the murderer, and the murderer was begging that customer not to shoot the murderer. Exactly. And uh, and uh, they ended up exchanging fire. The murderer was seriously wounded. He was able to get in his car and drive off, but he only got about a mile down the road before he passed out. And the police later uh, apprehended him uh, when he was passed out in his car. And uh, so, you know, here, it, here you have a, a white customer who is being assured that he was safe, but yet he still came to the aid of the blacks who were being shot by, by the murderer that was there. I, at the time... Uh, had uh, was able to uh, talk to Chuck Todd on social media, and I listened had listened to his program, and I I sent him a message. I said, "Look, you know, uh, here are some news articles from uh, Louisville, which have the full quote, unlike the New York Times and uh, other places, which you, where you probably got the quote from, and you can see it really changes the story, both in terms of." of uh, the fact that a, a civilian stopped the attack and that you have a white coming to the aid of blacks there to stop it. And I, and I suggested that maybe the next weekend he could go and, uh, you know, correct the impression there. He never corrected it, and uh, he blocked me after that. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy because that particular incident, that's less than two years ago, uh, that was all over Louisville media, whether it was WHAS or WAVE or whatever. I mean, it was all over uh, TV, and it would not have been hard for ABC, CNN, NBC if they did any research into this at all to get the full quote. In fact, I would argue it would have been hard for them to miss that. And so that's where, and I know your research, as wonderful it is, can't answer the question, but what the heck is going on? Why? Because obviously this this is biased for a reason, and we can only speculate on what that what that might be, but that's the, that's the perfect example, because it was a story, shocked everybody, because I think the guy was found on like Hurstbourne Lane or something, you know, not an area where you normally think it, it's not the wrong side of town and all that kind of thing. So uh, it just is amazing to me that that can occur. And like I say, I know that's not part of your research, but just anecdotally, what do you think is going on? Yeah, well, as you say, I don't try to figure out what's going on in people's minds. My my point is to say, look, I think this does have an impact on the debate, <laughs> how you cover these things. My guess is the entire gun control debate would be dramatically different if the media just covered a couple points. You mentioned earlier how these attacks keep on occurring in gun-free zones. Yeah. Uh, you know, 94% of these mass public shootings occur in place, the successful ones occur in places where people are banned from having guns. These successful attackers may be crazy in some sense, but they're not stupid. Their goal is to get more media attention, and they know if they go to a place 
where victims can't defend themselves, they're going to be more successful in killing more people. You know, um, and the thing is, the media will often, after these attacks, carry news items about how they think the person obtained the gun or what guns Mm -hmm. were used. Very frequently, those initial news stories are wrong on those points. It's hard to know quickly how the person obtained the gun. But the one thing that's probably the easiest fact to go and find is whether or not the attack occurred in a place where guns were banned or not. And yet, you will look in vain to find media accounts that will mention uh, that one fact. Uh, As I say, if even once in a while the media would cover that, my guess is the gun control debate we have right now would be very different. Um, You know, the other thing is if they were to mention once in a while these cases where heroes have stopped these mass public shootings, um, because if the person hadn't been there and the police were right in these cases that many people would have died if it wasn't for the presence of this concealed handgun permit holder, my guess is the debate would also be very different. Um, and, uh, you know, it's... Now, there's some things I can explain, I think, without bias. Like, so, for example, people have this impression that the United States has most of the mass public shootings in the world. <laughs> and I think the reason for that is that the media understandably, I think, is much more likely to go and cover a mass public shooting in the United States and to cover it much more extensively than they are to cover a mass public shooting in some other country. But the United States is way below the world average in terms of mass public shootings. We make up about 1% of the mass public shooters in the world, even though we make up almost 5% of the world population. And uh, so I have I have a couple chapters in uh, gun control myths that deal with mass public shootings yeah. and the data and the media discussion about these things, and uh, um, you know, but you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, everybody knows about the um, mosque shooting in New Zealand last year, right? But relatively few people would know that within less than 24 hours of that, there was a big school shooting in Brazil or a mass public shooting in the Netherlands. Um, You know, many times when these cases get news coverage at all in the United States, it may be buried in a very tiny story in the back of a newspaper, Um, you know, and, uh, and that has a real impact. You know, few people would know um, that, if you just compare Europe and the United States, the worst uh, mass public shootings are in Europe. Uh, you had in November 2015 uh, at the concert hall shooting in Paris, you had 130 people that were killed. Um, in uh, 2011 in Norway, you know, ignoring the bombing deaths uh, that were caused there, you had 67 people uh, that were uh, murdered. Uh, via gun and over 110 wounded. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, you talk about around the world, uh, uh, the worst school shooting that I know of 
uh, occurred in Bazan in uh, Russia in 2005, where there were 385 students that were killed. And no one heard but, about that. Absolutely no one. We're talking to Dr. John Lott, Gun Control Myths, How Politicians, the Media, and Botch Studies Have Twisted the Facts on Gun Control. And this is just a fraction of what is in this book. And uh, particularly if you disagree... Well, give us a call for one thing. We only have a few minutes left. But more to the point, read the book and see if you can disagree with the facts, because that's what's in there and only the facts. 888-876-5593 is 8888-Raleigh. I'm Raleigh James. It is WGN Radio. WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James. We're going to forego the last bumper there because we only have a few minutes and I want to spend it with Dr. John Lott and also got a couple calls. So we'll definitely get to James from Chicago. And what I uh, what I wanted to say is that if you're looking at some of these examples and saying, well, that doesn't happen here. Oh, really? How about April 19th, 2015, Logan Square? And you're saying, well, I barely remember that. Well, that's because there was an Uber driver with a permitted concealed handgun who stopped what could have been a mass public shooting. And that's not the uh, the only incident. And uh, before uh, before we go any further, we'll let James chime in here. So, James, welcome to WGM Radio. What's on your mind? Ah, uh, yes, thank you. Okay, your show is good. Um, I, I I understand people. Okay, right to 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 own guns. That's I have no problem with that. And uh, and now me personally, even though I have to friends who either been law enforcement or security or what have you, uh, and uh, but me personally, I get a little queasy actually having a gun. I almost think I'm going to have uh, my worst impulse is being kind of like the Charles Bronson oh, uh, death wish guy. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that, and uh, I'm glad you brought that up, James, and, and thank you. Uh, but I'm sure, Dr. Lott, that other people are thinking the same thing. Well, if you arm people, they're going to they're gonna go crazy. Uh, they're going to become vigilantes or what have you. But when you did your research, I would assume, based on everything I've read in all your books, that the exact opposite is what tends to happen. Am I right? No, you're exactly right. Look, um, we have about 19 million Americans with uh, concealed handgun permits, and we have a lot of data on how they behave. Uh, you know, we've been having these laws in effect for decades, uh, and what you find is that the type of person who has a concealed handgun permit tends to be extremely law-abiding. These people lose their permits for any type of firearms-related violation uh, at thousands or tens of thousands of 1%. Just to give you an idea, police are rarely convicted of misdemeanors or felonies. Police are convicted of misdemeanors and felonies at about 120th the rate of the general population. Concealed handgun permit holders are convicted at about one-tenth the rate that the police are. So they're one-two-hundredth the rate of the general population. And uh, usually the types of reasons when they run into problems uh, are relatively minor. Um, anyway, it just... You know, it, one of the myths out there is how people should behave when they're confronted by a criminal. You very frequently will see media accounts say that people should behave passively. And, in fact, that's pretty bad advice. Um, uh, you, this, by far the safest course of action for people to take when they're confronted by a criminal is to have a gun. And the people who benefit the most are the most vulnerable people in our society. They're basically two groups of people, women and the elderly, people who are relatively weaker physically, 
and people who are most likely victims of violent crime. And that overwhelmingly tends to be poor blacks who live in high-crime urban areas. The big thing about so much of gun control is that it basically uh, prevents the very people who need guns the most from getting it. Right. I'll give you a simple, quick example, if I can. i got about Compare Illinois to Indiana. Only 3% of adults in Illinois have a concealed handgun permit. In Indiana, it's about 19%. To get a concealed handgun permit in Illinois, it's $400 or so. It's zero now in Indiana. You have, the people who get okay. permits in Illinois tend to be overwhelmingly white males who live in the suburbs. You have a much I larger hate. share of minorities who go and get I permits in Indiana. I hate to do this, Indiana. Dr. Lott, but we've, we've exhausted an hour, so hopefully we will continue this again soon. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks a lot.